The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. You'll remember, maybe, uh, back in March, that we began talking about Galatians by reading kind of an odd passage. Do you remember what that was? Remember we read Genesis 34 and the story of Dinah and the Shechemites and how uh, they took advantage, they violated Dinah and then wanted to, uh, Shechem loved, the son of Hamor loved Dinah, wanted to marry her, and they spoke, the Israelites spoke deceitfully to the Hivites and said, well, if you'll get circumcised, all of you, then okay, that's fine. So Shechem comes back and his dad Hamor and says to them, hey, we can have all their stuff if we'll just get circumcised and they'll intermarry with us. And uh, they said, let's do it. So they got circumcised. And then when they were uh, sort of feeling the pain of that, two sons of Israel came and uh, uh, attacked them and plundered them. And, and I guess uh, uh, revenged or avenged uh, what they had done to their sister. And we said, why, why did we read that? Like we raised our hand. Who's ever heard that passage read in the in church before. <laughs> Nobody. I think Kathleen said she had. I still need to ask her where she had heard that, but very few people had heard that before. But we said, well, the big issue in the book of Galatians is whether or not Gentiles should be circumcised. So not exactly the same, but the reality was in Genesis 34, there was a group of Jewish people uh, encouraging uh, Gentiles to be circumcised, and they fell for it and to their demise. And in an analogous way, that's what is at stake at Galatians. Uh, they stand, however, to lose much more, the Galatians do, should they give in to the Jewish uh, faction that's encouraging circumcision. They wouldn't just be attacked physically, which is bad enough, but they would fall from grace. And Paul says that exactly. If you haven't already turned to Galatians, turn to Galatians. And you'll remember we read in Galatians 5, that Paul says exactly that, explicitly that, that if they do give in to circumcision and pursue it, then they would fall from grace. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5 of Galatians. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. I testify again to every man who receives circumcision he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. So it was, it was a big deal to Paul. And we asked the question, why would the Galatians want that? Like in the case of Shechem and the Hivites, it was more clear, right? I mean, he was smitten and then there was greed, like, hey, if we'll just go through this one procedure, we can have all their stuff, right? So, but why would the Galatians do that? And why would Paul care whether they did it or not? I don't want to review everything we did last time, but you'll recall that the Galatians, as we said, were Gentiles. And for the kids, we define that as there was a guy named Jacob. You remember Jacob? He stole his brother's birthright and his name was changed to Israel. And all the children from Israel or from Jacob and all his grandchildren and great, those are called the Israelites. And if you're not one of those, which many of us are not, then you are Gentiles. That's close enough to a, a description that everyone can understand. But Israel was God's chosen nation. God chose them 
in a special way apart from all the other nations. And we read this morning, Frank read for us, Psalm 147, that God declares his words to Jacob, his ordinances to Israel. He's not dealt that way with any other nation. Amos 3.2, you alone, Israel, I've chosen out of all the nations of the earth. Or Deuteronomy 14, you, Israel, are a set-apart people to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his possession out of all the peoples on the surface of the earth. So Israel was a special chosen people. The Gentiles, us, many of us, were not so fortunate. Now, keep your hand in Galatians, but turn just one book over to Ephesians 2. Again, this is all review. My goal today is twofold as you're turning to Ephesians. It's to review, to get us back on the Galatians train and thinking about it. And then it's to introduce a new concept and, and talk about how that applies to Galatians. So that's, that's my goal for today. But right now we're still in the review. But in, Gal in Ephesians 2, you remember we read in verse 12 of Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, that unlike the Israelites who we just read about, who were a special possession of, of Yahweh, who were chosen, given God's rules, loved in a special way, that wasn't true of the Gentiles. Verse 11, he says, Remember that you, formerly Gentiles in the flesh, uncircumcision, called by the circumcision, so the, you who are not circumcised, you Gentiles, remember you were separate from the Messiah, you were excluded from Israel. You know that chosen special nation we just talked about? They weren't a part of it. They were excluded from it. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. Frank took us through the covenants that God had made as promises of how he would bless his people. They were strangers. They weren't a part of those. They had no hope. They were without God in the world. <clears throat> they were, verse 13 and 14, far off. There was a dividing wall between them and the blessed nation. So some Gentiles in the past, in history, recognized that Israel had the promises. They had the true God. They recognized it. They recognized that Israel was the special blessed nation. And so they joined themselves as much as possible to Israel. They would try as much as possible to become a part of the nation. And we talked about three people who were examples of that. Do you remember any of them? Rahab, Daniel said. Rahab, who else? Ruth, and then a guy named Ittai the Gittite we talked about. There are others. There were others, but those were three that we discussed last time. Ruth, Rahab, and Ittai the Gittite. Those Gentiles did that because their own nations were not a part of God's special people. They didn't know God. They didn't have traditions and rules and regulations that were divine. And so Ruth, a Moabitess, or Rahab, a Canaanite, or Ittai, a Philistine, renounced their own nation and, to a large degree, joined to be a part of Israel. Because apart from that, they had no hope. They had no promises or covenants or special revelation. And so, even in, up into the New Testament times, there would be folks that joined themselves. They would go to synagogue. There were God-fears, or often would even... Uh, be circumcised and submit, if they could, to the law of Israel or would join themselves as much as possible to this blessed nation. That was the way that they could try to attach themselves to the blessings of God. But in that same passage in Ephesians 2, it talks about how something changed. Those uncircumcised Gentiles that Paul was writing to were brought near by the blood of Christ, verse 13. God, through Christ, 
broke down the dividing wall, verse 14. Or verse 19 of Ephesians 2, they are no longer strangers, they're no longer excluded. They're fellow citizens with the saints. They became a part of God's household. Through circumcision? No. No, they didn't. It wasn't through circumcision. That was what was so surprising about it. These were not Gentiles who submitted themselves to circumcision or joined themselves to Israel. These were Gentiles who, by all accounts, and particularly because they received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues, and so you could see, wow, they received the same gift that we did. What does that mean? Does that mean all nations could be a part of the people of God? Read one chapter later in, in, in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. Paul says this was a mystery. It was a mystery. And you can, by referring to this, you can understand my insight into this mystery, something that was new, something that wasn't revealed or known before, which in other generations, verse 5, was not made known to, to humans as it has now been revealed by his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Namely, to be specific, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. For thousands of years, if you were part of the people of God, if you were part of that group that was receiving blessings, you were circumcised and you followed the law of Moses. That's just the way it was. And now... These Gentiles who had no knowledge of the law of Moses, were not circumcised, appeared to be fellow heirs by receiving the Spirit through the gospel. But what do we do? Should they be circumcised and follow the law now? Because that's how it's been for 10 times as long as our country has been a nation. I mean, you think about something that's deep-seated in our nation, to go multiply by 10, that's just the way it was forever. Well, not forever, but a long time compared to our lifespan, forever. So what should we do? You would have said, if you lived in that day, you would have said, yes. Yes, that's, the, that's, that's what marks out the people of God. In fact, in those days, if you didn't get circumcised, you were cast out. If you were an Israelite and you did not get circumcised, you're, you're cut off from your people, right? And so if you lived in those days, you would have said, yes, that's the way it is. That's all I can ever remember. That's what my dad said. That's what my grandfather said. That's what everyone has always said. And there were certain people telling these Gentiles, the Galatians and others, just that. Yes, you need to be. That's great. We're so glad. Welcome to the family. Now, be circumcised and follow the law. That's what we do around here, right? That's what they were telling them. Yes, you would have said that's what needs to be done. And Paul wrote Galatians to say, no, no. No, that is not what's going to happen. That is not what needs to happen. Gentile believers should not. No, no, no. Gentile believers must not seek to be circumcised as a first step towards then following the law of Moses. And this is still just review, so bear with me. We talked at the time back in March about how this was similar to the book of Hebrews, remember? The book of Hebrews was written not to Gentiles, but to Jewish Christians who, because of persecution, were thinking about returning to the Old Covenant, to the law of Moses, to sacrifices, renouncing Christ even. And there are severe warnings to those in Hebrews who are considering doing that, using very similar language about falling away, apostasy, falling from grace. Galatians, very similarly, was not written to Jewish Christians, but Gentile Christians who were thinking about doing the same thing. And they have just as many warnings in Galatians. Just wouldn't be a returning 
to the law of Moses. It would be a, a turning to it for the first time. But just as the author of Hebrews did, Paul warns these Christians that to do so would be to their destruction. It'd be like Shechem and the Hivites of old, should they pursue circumcision. They would, it would lead to their destruction. And Paul is writing to keep them from making that same mistake. It's the preeminent question in the book of Galatians. Should Gentiles keep the law starting with being circumcised? And the answer is no, a firm no. Doing so would lead to their demise. Almost done with the review. One more page of notes. Last time we noted, though, that not everyone agrees with that interpretation of Galatians. There are several groups today who say that's not what Paul is saying. That's not at all what Paul is saying. And, you know, again, given thousands of years of practice at that time, I'm sure people said that's not what Paul means. Or if it is what he means, he's wrong. You know, so there are many folks that would say this is not, this is not what Paul is saying back in Paul's day or in our day. And there were three big questions that come to mind if you do want to introduce such a change, Paul. I mean, again, thousands of years, that's the way believers acted. And now you're saying no? So I've got at least three big questions for you, Paul. First, who are you? <laughs> you're a man. Like, who are you? This God, you remember? He came down on Mount Sinai and gave the law to them. He got, it was God who gave circumcision to Abraham and his descendants. Who are you, Paul? Like, how can you introduce this change? The law was eternal. Jesus, the, the, the Son of God, said he did not come to abolish the law, to, to fulfill it. And he said he would be blessed if you taught it and obeyed it. Well, who are you, Paul? So that's one. Two, what does that even mean then? I mean, did the law fail? Did the law not meet its purposes? What's the point? Like, what are you saying? By saying that we're not following the law, are you saying it wasn't good? Something was wrong with the law? Or third, okay, we don't have the law. What do we have then? What governs us? We're just free to do whatever we want, right? And those are the questions that Paul will speak to in Galatians. Roughly in chapters 1 through 2 for the first, 3 through 4 for the second, 5 through 6 for the third. Not exactly but close enough. Okay, that gets us through the review. Now I'd like to introduce a very simple concept, and when we're done, we'll spend the rest of the time applying that concept to Galatians. So it was odd for us to start, back in March, reading from Genesis 34. I want to keep that tradition. I want to read something odd again today. So I'd like you all to turn back to Lamentations, and the Song of Solomon. Lamentations is after the biggest book in the Bible. Do you know what the biggest book in the Bible is? By words, not by Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So if you find Jeremiah, it's right after that. Lamentations is right after that. And then the Song of Solomon, which is after the third biggest book in the Bible by word count, Psalms, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Do you all know what the second biggest is by word count? You've, I think I've told you this before. Haven't? Oh, okay. A ringer. Yeah, I guess if you remember, that's worth it. So turn to Lamentations. I've got there, so maybe y'all are faster. I was talking, and now I'm trying to find Song of Solomon. Lamentations 1, Song of Solomon 2. And just kind of have a hand in each of them. And this will be, uh, will require work from y'all. 
I want you, uh, well, let me introduce it. For us in our generation, we receive our content via television, radio, the internet. When we receive content, we don't have to add emotion or expression to it. Now, there are readers out there. I know there are, there are readers, but you think about before we had the ability to do audio or video in that way, when you were reading a letter or reading something, you, you have to figure out, like, what is the person feeling? We even talk today, right? Like, you get a text. Sometimes it's hard to know, how, how is the person writing this? Are they upset with me? Or are they not, you know? I want you to just ask yourself, as you read through Lamentations 1, what emotion or expression needs to be added as you read how lonely sits the city that was full of people. She's become like a widow who once was great among the nations. She's become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her. How, sh how should I read that if I were enacting it? With joy and gusto? No, right? If I was a good actor, and I'm not, uh, I would I would conjure up tears and I would I would wail and moan right it's a it's a very sad sorrowful I mean an awful time the things that happened to Jerusalem that they're recounting here well let's say I took now turn over to Song of Solomon 2 let's say I said okay well if that's how I'm supposed to read letters what if I read Song of Solomon 2 say starting at verse 8 that way listen my beloved behold he's coming climbing on the mountains leaping on the hills my beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. He's standing behind our wall. He's looking through the windows. He's peering through the lattice. My beloved responded and said to me, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. I won't keep reading, but should I read it the way I read Lamentations? That would be really weird, right? How should I read this? Joy. With a lot of joy and excitement and, um, you know, anticipation. So... These letters sometimes convey a great deal of emotion or expression, and it's important that you read them properly. It would be really odd if I read Lamentations the way that I should read Song of Solomon, or if I read Song of Solomon the way that I should read Lamentations. And in those cases, in those two cases, you can turn back to Galatians now, the emotions are obvious. They're very quick. On the surface, you can figure them out. Not all letters convey such deep emotions. But if they do, it's important to know that and to note that. And it turns out Galatians does. To read Galatians without understanding the emotion behind it would be like reading Lamentations with joy or Song of Solomon with somberness or solemnity. That's the principle. Now I want to apply it to Galatians. And I'm going to start by noting that the emotion that I have in mind is one that Paul often has not just in Galatians, but in many of his letters. And even though it's consistently in his letters, you may not have ever thought much about Paul and this emotion. And once you think about it, you may be surprised because he commands us not to have that emotion. And yet he experiences it a lot. Or if you're like me and are sometimes prone to this emotion, you may be encouraged to know Paul was prone to it in at least one way at least. And the emotion I'm speaking of is anxiety. It shows up in Paul's languages, excuse me, in Paul's letters with language like, I don't want to run in vain. I don't want my work to have been in vain. Or I'm fearful that something is going to happen. Or my spirit wasn't at rest. 
You see that in a lot of Paul's letters. Now, the summary example of it is in 2 Corinthians 11. You don't have to turn there. You're welcome to. But at the end of 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is cataloging, because he's comparing himself to other so-called false apostles, he's cataloging all that he's been through for the sake of Christ. And he talks about he's been in, beaten with rods, stoned, 39 lashes, I'm in verse 25, shipwrecked a night and a day, spent a night in the deep, dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness. He's just cataloging all that he's been through, all the risks and pain that he's been through in serving Christ. Labor, hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, exposed. And then he says in verse 28, Apart from those external things, things that are from the outside coming into me, there is the daily pressure of concern for all the churches. Paul had a daily pressure. This was not something that was here one day and he was good for a couple of weeks. Every day, he said, I experience anxiety for the churches that I've helped plant, that I care about, that I love about. I mean, parents know this anxiety. Uh, especially when you're away from your children, which Paul was, his spiritual children. You know that anxiety, and that's how Paul felt, and he felt it often, and he felt it strongly. In fact, just earlier in that same letter, he struggled to have it at times not interfere with his mission. Now, I don't mean to paint Paul in a, a bad light. He, he's not a hypocrite for commanding us not to be anxious. Uh, he overcame it, and I'm going to re reference an article later that I think is really helpful in this, but it was hard on him at least. I will say, Second Corinthians 2, verse 12, When I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit. He was worried about Titus, and he had no rest, and he had this open door in front of him. But he didn't find Titus and his brother, so he took leave and went to Macedonia. So he was struggling, worried about Titus, and it was impacting his mission. Paul was particularly anxious. His, the, the majority thing that he was anxious for was that all his work, he had labored so hard. He said, I worked harder than anybody. Not that it was me, it was Christ working in me, but I worked harder than anybody. He worked so hard, all those things we just read, sleepless nights, going without food. He worked so hard to see Christ be formed in people and he was really worried that it would fail, that it would abort, that his labor would be in vain. There's numerous examples. Again, this is not something that just, you know, every now and then. This was a daily pressure of Paul that he had. I'm going to just read a couple more. First Thessalonians 3 is an example. First, the Thessalonians were a great church, but he still worried about even them. He says, when I could endure it no longer, listen to that, like, he was under stress, and he, could, he couldn't handle it anymore. I thought it best to be left behind at Athens and sent Timothy to find out about you and strengthen and encourage you so that you wouldn't give up because of this persecution that you're experiencing. Because while we were with you, we told you that that was going to happen, and it came to pass. And then verse 5, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter may have tempted you, and our labor should be in vain." Paul was really worried. He was very anxious about those things. David's going to be teaching us from Philippians when he's back in the pulpit. 
And Philippians 2, 14 to 16, talks about how he doesn't want their their faith to be in vain, for them to have believed in vain. And Paul wasn't just worried about the churches. That was enough. He was worried about the churches. That was his primary concern. But he said, remember in Romans, I won't turn there, but he had unceasing anguish and grief over his unbelieving brothers and sisters in Israel. He wished he could be accursed for their sake. He, he suffered, as it were, from this worry, from this anxiety. Again, I don't mean to paint him negatively because he also, in each of these instances, will very quickly break into doxology and praise God. And again, the article that I'll reference here in just a second, I don't know, oh, it's right here in my notes. I think it does a good job of explaining how those two things are held in tension. Nevertheless, lastly, and I don't have time to develop this either to stay on time, but it wasn't just for the churches. It wasn't just for his kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul was anxious about himself. And I know a lot of people don't believe this and, and, and have a hard time believing this, and I don't have time to prove it now, although we've talked through this before. But in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul drove himself. He acted the way he did because he didn't want himself to be running in vain. He didn't want his, he didn't want to be disqualified. And Paul himself defines what he means by disqualified in 2 Corinthians 13. It means to not have Christ. So Paul did what he did. He beat his body. He boxed with a purpose because he himself didn't want to be disqualified. Now, I don't know. I think everybody's different, but it resonates with me. I'm, I'm easily anxious and fearful about an uncertain future, and I feel like I've worked to overcome it to a large degree, but, but it's there, and, and I'm definitely prone to it. And I think it's interesting that this same apostle who clearly experienced this writes in Philippians 4, 6, what? Be anxious for nothing, right? First Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, right? And if you wonder how those two things fit together, there's an article from 1981 by John Piper. It's called, Is There Good Anxiety? I think it's a good uh, explanation, in my opinion, a good explanation. But it's called, Is There Good Anxiety? If you Google that, I think you might find that interesting. But regardless, the point is, Paul often felt anxiety as it pertained to the churches he visited. And Galatians is the premier example of this anxiety. More signs of concerns in this letter than any other one. I mean, Corinthians, they had some bad stuff going on, right? You remember there was a person that had his own, was it mother? Stepmom. Stepmom. I mean, there was question of the resurrection there. I mean, there was some bad stuff going on in Corinthians. But Paul took time at the front of his letter to commend them and tell them he was praying for them. How about Galatians? No. No, he, he doesn't even stop to do that. He's clearly at odds and wrestling with his concern. Second Timothy, Paul's been abandoned by just about everyone. He's about to be executed. But even there, and you read the letter, there's a steady hope despite those dire circumstances, probably because Paul had matured. You know, 2 Timothy was towards the end of his life. He had matured to the point uh, as a believer at that time. But Galatians is the very first letter Paul wrote. He had just finished his first missionary journey when he penned it. He had not even been away from the churches very long at all that he's writing to. We'll talk more about the history next week. But it, more so than 2 Timothy, more so than Romans, more so than Thessalonians, more so than Corinth, this letter has a tremendous amount of anxiety underneath it. And my singular goal with the time we have left is just to take you on a tour through Galatians to show you his anxiety. 
so that we'll read it correctly, just so we don't read it with too much joy and gusto or too little recognition of the torture that Paul was feeling as he considered what was happening to these believers. I'm going to walk through seven examples of it together in the time we have left. These are, they won't, I won't take a lot of time on each of them, so seven sounds like a lot, but they won't take a lot of time. And I think the, the combination or the, the sum of all these will show you, uh, just kind of give you a taste, give you a feel for the sorrow of the writer of Lamentations, the joy of Song of Solomon and his bride, or in this case, the anxiety of the Apostle Paul. So turn to Galatians. We are finally out of Genesis and Lamentations and actually in the book that I'm saying we're going to study together. So turn to Galatians and turn to chapter 1. Here's the first of seven examples. I've already referenced it. He had no time in the letter. It was just a simple slide, so it's okay that it blacked out, I think. There's nothing else to come. Um, he had no time for commendation. When he, when he started his pen to paper, or as we'll see, when his scribe started a pen to paper as Paul was speaking to him, um, he gives a very short greeting. You see that in, in verse 3. You know, it's Paul to the brothers, grace to you. And then, man, he jumps right in in verse 6. No time to commend them, no time to talk about what he's proud about for them, how he's praying for them. Um, he just goes right into his astonishment. I cannot believe what is happening. I mean, again, I, we could turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and read about how he takes time. We could turn to 1 Timothy 1 and read about how he takes time. Remember, he talks about Timothy's mother and grandmother and commends him for his faith. I mean, Romans, same thing, but not Galatians. Not Galatians. I am amazed you are so quickly deserting him who called you. And it's not even a gospel, not another gospel. What are you doing? I cannot believe this just jumps right in. That's example one. Example two that would cause, that would contribute to this being the premier example of Paul's anxiety. This issue that, it, it came out of nowhere and it came fast. Like it wasn't, he didn't see it coming. It wasn't, he didn't see a trajectory over years. Like, oh no, that's gonna, it came, I mean, Paul, you remember Acts 13 and 14, Paul leaves Antioch. He goes to the churches in Southern, Southern Galatia and he comes back, and then he writes the letter right then. I mean, he had just gotten back. He had just gotten back. And that's why he says, I'm astonished, verse 6, so quickly. And, and he's, he's astonished because think about the trade they're making, right? He says, you're trading the grace of Christ. You're deserting him who called you for the grace of Christ for a different gospel. They're getting rid of a free gift from the Son of God and taking a surgical procedure that no one would like. Right? That's the, that's the trade they're making. What in the world? Like I know parents sometimes, you know, you think, my kids, what are you, what, how did you make that decision, right? That's how he feels spiritually. It's, it's out of right field. It's a crazy trade. And it happens so fast, so fast. His first missionary journey was maybe 47, 48 AD. And then sometime around 48, 49 AD, he's already writing. They've changed so quickly. That's the second example. First example, no time for commendation. Second example, this issue is crazy. I cannot believe they would make that change and, it, and do it so fast. But three, Paul was extremely anxious because of what he felt like, what was at stake. I mean, again, he had serious issues in all of the churches that he dealt with. And he had 
issues of harm to himself. Again, beatings and hunger. But Paul always, above all, kept the main thing the main thing. The thing that worried him the most were people's souls, were the eternal destiny, the eternal fate of people's souls. Even when there were issues of sexual immorality, I mean, it was that's bad enough, but the issue is that that's symptomatic of what's happening in those people. Galatians 4.11, he's worried about the Galatians' souls. I already mentioned, we already read five, verse, chapter 5, and fallen from grace and uh, severed from Christ. Christ is of no benefit to them. Galatians 4.11, I fear for you that I might have labored over you in vain. All that work, I mean, he came when he was really sick. He came when he had serious physical problems. And he did it anyways because it was worth it, because it's their eternal destiny. And yet that work, he's afraid, may have been in vain. He's afraid for their souls. Reality is, Paul was a little afraid for himself. Look at Galatians 1, 6-7. He says, if there's anybody who preaches the wrong gospel, because again, the stakes are so high. If you preach the wrong gospel, then what, what should happen to that person? Verse 8, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. And if you look at Galatians 2.2, 2, again, this is really early in Paul's ministry, right? He's just started his first missionary journey. Verse 2 of chapter 2, he goes and he consults with the apostles in Jerusalem because he's been teaching this gospel and he doesn't want himself to have been running in vain. He feared that. And again, I think Paul, that's a hard tension. Don't get me wrong. I don't think Paul thought his gospel was wrong. I, I, but he, there was just all this tension, and he worried himself. He knows that somebody teaching a false gospel should be accursed. And he's out there, and he's going against Peter and, the, and all these people and thousands of years of history. And he has at his disposal revelations from Christ, which we'll get to in weeks to come. But it still worried him. He was worried about their souls. He was worried about his soul. For him, a lot was at stake. And it was, again, early. Again, I think you give him five years, you give him ten, you know, he's, he's got it. He's completely confident, not that he doesn't still wrestle with anxiety, but in this letter, he's wrestling with it big time. Example four. This is the hardest to explain, and if you don't get it, just nod. The next one's the easiest. But, but it's interesting to watch Paul make his arguments in this letter. I've already explained he's basically answering three things. Like, who are you, Paul, that you say this is the case? Did the law fail? Is that what you're saying? You're saying, well, what are we governed by, Paul, right? Those are the three things, for the most part, that he's answering. But he is not succinct in his explanation. He starts off and he just keeps on writing. We were listening to a song this morning coming in. Oh, my goodness. It was terrible. I don't know how many times they repeated the same thing. And I don't really have a problem with that. Usually, I had a problem. I had... It was killing me, right? Paul, he just keeps on writing. I mean, he just, two chapters basically on each of these questions. Look at the first one. Who are you, Paul? Look at verse 11 of chapter one. You'll see at the very beginning of verse 11 in chapter one, I'd have you know, brethren, you see right before that is the word for. He's, he's launching in to an explanation. And that explanation of how his gospel didn't come from man Last, you just keep turning the page. It just keeps coming all the way down to the, towards the end of chapter 2. Again, I mean, if something is important, 
Like if I'm in, if I'm in a hurry and maybe one of my children comes to me, I might give a really quick answer. Like, no, just do this. You know, it's not important. If it's important, I'm going to stop and I'm going to take time and I'm going to answer it thoroughly. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's not treating these things superficially. He's expending maximum argumentation coming from a deep anxiety. Example five, this one's even easier to see. Watch Paul describe his anxiety. What is possibly one of the worst experiences of humanity? Childbirth, right? I can't speak to it personally, obviously, but I have seen my share. And childbirth is a, is a tough experience. I'm sorry, I don't even, I'm, I need to, I don't even know how to describe it. It's just an awful experience. I remember when our first was born, uh, we were in Cartersville and the doctor saying, you know, I don't remember how we got on this subject. We were talking about God and, and you know, oh, isn't it awesome, a new, new life? And he said, well, my opinion is God didn't design it right. He made it, you know, the baby too big or the exit too small. And, you know, but that was on purpose too, right? I mean, that, that came through the curse as well. But regardless, uh, that is indicative, illustrative of, of maximum pain, right? I mean, the tribulation, how is it described? In the, it's birth pangs, right? And Paul, you know, they ask you in the hospital, where are you on a one to 10? Paul says, I'm in, I'm in childbirth right now. I'm in transition, you could say maybe. Right? He says, it's good, verse 18 of chapter 4, it's good to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. He's perplexed and it's killing him. He doesn't understand why they're doing what they're doing. Example 6, just look at the vigor with which he reacts. The worse your reaction Excuse me, the worse something is, generally the stronger your reaction. Listen to how he describes his confrontation to Peter in chapter 2, verse 11. When Cephas, who is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now, Peter wasn't distorting the gospel. He was just walking opposed to it. We'll get to that later. He, but even that little thing, it wasn't, again, that he was teaching a false gospel. That's not what was happening but even just that his conduct was making it hard for the gospel to come through, Paul gets right up in his face and opposes him. Or listen to how he describes the enemies who were actually distorting the gospel. Verse 12 of chapter 5. I wish that those who are troubling you, and remember in chapter 1 he said there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. He says, I wish that those who were troubling you would mutilate, would emasculate themselves. That's pretty significant language. Or the way he talks to the Galatians themselves in chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians! Who put a spell on you? Who bewitched you? Or the way he appeals to them in chapter 4, verse 12. I beg you, brothers, become as I am. I beg you. You can see that Paul is anxious for their eternal souls, by the way, and the vigor with which he reacts. And finally, lastly, how he ends the letter. We looked at how he began it. He had no time to waste on formalities. He jumped right in. And how he ends the letter. Look at Galatians 6, 11. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but oftentimes the apostles would write through a scribe. 
It was very common in those days. Letter writing was done that way. Not everyone had personal computers that could bang out emails, right? You would often use a scribe to dictate your letters. You can actually see in Romans, Tertius actually says, this is Tertius and I'm greeting you too. So the scribe actually writes and greets the people in that case. And that was very common. And it appears, again, we're filling in blanks here, but it appears in verse 11 that Paul has done as he does often in his letter, done dictating or done sharing what he wants written, and he has picked up the pen in verse 11. He says, look, with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, again, that's very, that's very common. In first, in, he did it in a lot of his letters. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 17, he does it to show, look, this is, you, know it's my, you know this is really a letter from me. You can tell because here's my signature as it were, because people were writing letters as if from Paul to say things that he didn't agree with. Or sometimes he would pick up the pen just to send greetings like Tertius did in Romans or Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 21. Hey, everybody, just wanted to say hi, it's Paul. Or to send a short little blessing like in Colossians 4:18. You know, just want a, a quick blessing on the people that I'm writing to. But look here, Paul picks up the pen. That's not the last verse, right? There's eight more verses he bangs out eight more verses and recovers everything he just said. He doesn't say, just wanted to let you know it's me or just wanted to say hello. He says, I, I want to talk to you about those people who are trying to make a good showing in the flesh and get you circumcised and all that matters is Christ. And he just goes right back into it. Like, okay, Paul, you know, and he writes in big old letters too. Like, I don't even know what that means. Like, there's different debates on what that means. Did Paul have bad eyesight and there's reason they believe that? Or regardless, it seems like he's just like all caps. You know, have you ever seen tweets or texts in all caps? It's like, he's clearly upset. He's clearly anxious. So that's Paul's ending. And now it's time for me to end. My main goal for this second sermon on Galatians was to make sure that we read it right. The first sermon from March and that we reviewed today was just to give you the main idea. The book is about whether believing Gentiles should be circumcised and start, follow, and start following the law. And the answer is no. The second was to make sure we didn't pull a Lamentations or a Song of Solomon and read it wrong, read it with the wrong emotion, but recognize the grave anxiety Paul was feeling when he penned it. Again, Paul struggled with it or, you know, it was something that he felt daily but there is no letter in which he feels it as much here. It's the earliest letter. He's just starting to figure out how he cares for the churches. is a big deal. A lot is at stake. And you can see through the seven things we went through just how anxious he was. And as I close, there may be some application or action items for us, even though it was mainly to just get us in a frame of reference to read it right. First, uh, there's the note about anxiety and the fact that Paul suffered from it and yet commanded through the Holy Spirit that we don't. And again, I would commend to you that writing Is There Good Anxiety by John Piper because, you know, he basically says, in short, there, there are things that are worthy of being anxious about. You know, there are problems and things that ought to cause anxiety. You just have to put that in the context of something bigger. But that might be helpful for some of us who struggle with that. And second and last... Just the seriousness of Paul that led to this anxiety. I mean, I think about it for me as the teacher, the one teaching. 
He says in Galatians 1, if you get it wrong, you get the gospel wrong, you need to be accursed, right? And now I'm entering in to tell you what the gospel means. So there should probably be some, you know, solemnity or seriousness as I'm approaching this. You know, you teach it wrong, Paul says it's a big deal. And again, there are a lot of people who would say to me, you're teaching it wrong. As now what Paul was saying, you're reading it wrong. And to us, just to keep the main thing the main thing, there are all kinds of things that are important in the world that we ought to care about. There are. But there is nothing more important than eternal life. There's nothing more important than the souls, the faith of God's children. And we ought to pray for each other in that regard. We ought to encourage each other in that regard. And while we ought to care about all those other things too, we ought to, to be sure. We ought never care more than for that. Okay, let's pray and we'll be dismissed after we sing for a time of fellowship. David, I may need your help on the display. Let's pray. God, we thank you ultimately for the gospel. We thank you for the truth that though we deserve death, though because of sin we deserve condemnation, and though because of weakness and because of your excellence and holiness, there's nothing we can do to earn salvation, that out of grace, out of love, to not see the banished one remain banished, but to do what you can to bring us home, to bring us back to your family, that through faith in your word, uh, we can have salvation. And we thank you, God, for the efforts of the Apostle Paul and how he did work harder than anyone, as it were, through you working in him, to leave the church with a record of the gospel for an understanding of where we should stand and for the hope that we can have as a result of that. And yet, God, we struggle. We struggle with whether it's anxiety or something else. We all struggle, and yet we want to run well. We want to believe. We want to balance the things that we do have to live with and that are important without ever taking our eye off the main thing, without uh, taking, without, while, while keeping the main thing the main thing. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us through this study to know your gospel better, to understand more in a more detailed way, in a more firm way, why it is that it's faith alone in your son that is what is needed to be reconciled to you. And there's nothing in addition and that we uh, ought to fear the closer we get to adding something in with that faith. Help us to know how to balance it, how to speak about it, and how, most importantly, to live in a way that's worthy of the calling that you've called us with. In Jesus' name. Amen.